Allison. And I'm Stacy. And you are listening to the Best Together podcast. Brought to you by Blind Early Services Tennessee. And made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Best Together podcast. I'm Allison, and I'm joined here with Stacy and our guest today, who I'm really, really excited to introduce. I think we've talked a lot on this podcast and in general, uh, if you've met us, about how we formed best as a model after the amazing VIPS in Kentucky. And VIPS stands for Visually Impaired Preschool Services. It's an amazing organization that um, has done both early intervention and has a brick and mortar preschool, brick and mortar resource center. They're doing all the things in both Kentucky and Indiana that we are trying to bring here to the state of Tennessee. And we couldn't have done any of that on our own. We um, have relied very heavily on our guest today, uh, Kathy Mullen, who is the Director of Education at VIPS in Louisville, Kentucky. So welcome, Kathy. Hello there. Um, We're really excited to have you, and we'll probably just kick off with um, having you tell us a little bit about your story and what led you to the field of visual impairment. Certainly. Well, I am not a teacher of the visually impaired. I don't have a background in vision services. My um, background is in special education. I started out as a classroom teacher and lasted there for about seven years, and while there, I got my first master's degree also in special education. But I think I recognized quite early that the importance of um, early intervention, getting in with the family as early as possible and moving from the classroom um, into early intervention was just the perfect fit for me. So um, I ended up after starting with the Kentucky First Step System as a developmental interventionist Um, where I primarily worked with kiddos with neurological impairments, either um, autism or some developmental diagnoses such as Down syndrome. Um, I also worked a whole lot with children with um, very complex needs and loved it. I loved every minute of it. I I knew that, all right, I found my niche. I'm supposed to be on the living room floor instead of in a classroom leading a group of older students, older meaning first grade. The oldest I've ever taught was second grade. (laughs) Um, as I, uh, continued as a developmental interventionist, I um, got my specialist as an early childhood educator and then moved into the position of the state technical assistant with Kentucky First Steps. But, um, after that job was eliminated, I followed my passion and I went to, um, a pro a local program serving people of all ages who have a diagnosis of Down syndrome, but um, as even as the program director, my job became very administrative and I found myself suddenly running the waivers for um, adult programming. And that just wasn't my cup of tea. I'm an educator and needed to get back into that world of education, not in the classroom, but in some type of school setting. So while I was um, working with that organization, I was being I affectionately call it stalked. I was being stalked by the um, executive director here at VIPS. And um, Diane kept calling me and saying, we have just the job for you. I'm not sure how she knew that, but she did. Um, And I kept saying, oh, but I don't know vision. And she would say, oh, but we do. 
Um, but we need somebody who knows early childhood and who understands the system. So um, eventually I found my way to VIPS and I have said since the second day, I wish I would have answered that phone call two, two years earlier because <laughs> this is where I'm meant to be. Um, so although I don't have that background, I am more than confident that many of the children who I served and families I supported through First Steps um, most likely had a diagnosis of cortical visual impairment. We just didn't, we called it that, but we just didn't identify it like we do now. Um, so I think I, I recognize that by serving children with a, uh, with, through the lens of looking at the child developmentally and what they needed from where they were, um, on what level they were working or functioning, you could meet the needs of the child with the support of other team members um, through First Steps. And many of the children I served also had teachers who were teachers of the visually impaired, some of them through VIPs. So um, I learned firsthand that way to work with these kiddos and then have just continued my education to learn more about vision loss by taking some classes and joining our teachers in the preschool or home visits or trainings and um, learning as I go along. That's fabulous, Kathy. Um, I would love to hear more about um, the unique offerings at VIPS, specifically in Kentucky, um, because you are our first guest um, we've had so far that um, represents an organization who actually has an inclusive preschool uh, that serves children um, specifically with vision impairment alongside typical peers. Will you tell us more about that program? Certainly. So when I came to VIPS um, nine and a half years ago, we did have a preschool in place. There were seven students, one classroom, um, and all of the children had vision loss of some degree. Um, all of the children had an IEP from the school system, an individualized education program. Um, but research shows, and, and I'm big on that research piece and uh, looking at the, um, the systemic ways that we can make changes um, to our programming to improve the education for all children. So back to that research, it shows that children with any kind of special need are going to be more successful in a school setting where they are learning alongside a peer who is developing typically. So um, the first year that, that I jumped in, we had a couple of young mothers working on our team who had young children, preschool age, and they um, willingly let us try it with their kids. And so it was a win-win for those young moms because their children were um, in the same building with them. They could um, check in on them too. And it was a win-win for our, our students. We began to see right away that, um, that that research was true. Our children with vision loss now had role models who looked like them and who liked the same things they liked and or making it more of that equal playing field instead of it always being an adult trying to get them to do things. The um, peers who were developing typically did not realize that their classmates were blind. They didn't realize that they were being those role models or those extra helpers to um, retrieve objects or equipment or materials. It was, it was 
fascinating to see um, the ins and outs of, of our program really growing the way we wanted it to. So we grew quickly. Um, within a couple of years, we had a waiting list for our children who were um, for our sighted peer program. It's what we call our, to our peers who are developing typically. Um, we expanded it to more family members and friends of families and then had that waiting list just with community people wanting to come and join our program. Our ratio is so small in our preschool that even our kids who are developing typically really have an individualized education program. We can know if they needed extra help in different areas. Um, and what we have heard from our families is, is that their children are prepared for the next phase of school. That's for our children who have vision loss and for our children who are developing typically. They're, um, the standardized tests that they are taking in, in public school systems are showing that they are well prepared. The um, transition services that we offer our students who have vision loss and other needs um, are showing that what we are doing in our Vips Kids Town Preschool is very impactful for all of them. That's so amazing. And I've been to Vips uh, before I actually took my son there uh, last summer, and it is just such a magical place um, and I can definitely attest to it's a great preschool for any child. I am curious how you've attract, done such a good job of attracting those sighted peers because I would think mm -hmm. um, you know we we have aspirations to do something similar here one day in Tennessee mm -hmm. and um, you know I think the name of the school is Visually Impaired Preschool Services. Did you have any trouble with families thinking, well, my child doesn't have a vision impairment, so that's not the school for, for my child? Or, you know, was it kind of yeah. seamless just through word of mouth? How did that all go? Well, I would say that word of mouth was most definitely our most successful way of advertising that we were serving a typical population as well. Um, and it had to come from within. We had to build that trust with people within our community before we could expand to others. So again, those coworkers helped. I sent a couple grandchildren. I have one here now in our program. And um, I think that probably helped too, that I trusted it enough to send my beloved grandchildren, much less my children. So, um, <laughs> and you know, then a friend would say, well, I want to, I want to try it too. I hear great things. And so that was very, very powerful. Now I'm going to be honest and say, there are years that we have a waiting list and there are years that we are calling and we are putting on Facebook, we need help, we need we need more sighted peers. I can't find rhyme or reason. I blame COVID for our recent um, reduction in our sighted peers, but that across the country, um, preschools are experiencing a much smaller enrollment and even more so in Kentucky. I think nationally it's, um, 25% the preschool enrollment is down and in Kentucky mm. it's 33%. So, mm. you know, that's pretty significant and that, and we match those numbers spot on that we, we have fewer sighted peers this year. Um, but I think we, we first had to use that word of mouth and then we just had to prove it that we have really, we have good programming. Um, and again, I don't want you to think that we have rainbows and sunshine every day. <laughs> there are days that it's like, okay, people, raise that bar again, don't get comfortable. We mm. we're on a mission here and all children deserve an, um, a wonderful and appropriate education. And that's what we need to remain focused on. Um, I think, and I'll just give a little plug for this too. Our preschool director is legally blind. 
Um, she has very, very low vision. We have a teacher in our, our lead teacher in our twos program is also legally blind. And I think that that is one of the most important things that we can do within our program is have adults who match our population. Um, it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air for our parents who come through the door to think, oh, wow, there, there is a future for my child. And um, let me get this foundation built right now so that, that we can look at the same thing someday when our children are adults. So I think that's really important. Um, another big thing is we've worked very hard to establish um, a relationship with our public school system here in Louisville, that they trust us to contract with us and send us their students, their preschoolers who are blind or visually impaired. It hasn't always been a beautiful relationship, but it is now. Um, we, en we enjoy each other's company in meetings. We go to conferences and sit together. Um, we share ideas and ask each other for um, consultation when an issue arises. That took a lot of effort, but that, um, that needs to be something that I think when we look at an integrated program for such a low frequency population as vision loss, you have to have community support and that can come through public school systems successfully if that relationship is built. Let's jump to perhaps the other half of mm -hmm. um, the education services, and that is mm -hmm. the outreach portion. Sure. Um, so, um, of course, not every family um, who has a child with vision loss is going to be around the Louisville area. Um, right. how, how do those families get services? Well, um, Visually Impaired Preschool Services is a statewide service provider through our Kentucky Early Intervention System, also known as First Steps. Um, and so we are on, we serve all points of entry. We make sure that we are calling them, doing trainings for them, presentations, so that our name is known through them. Um, we have teachers who travel uh, typically just a day trip. We have one who goes twice a year to another area twice a year, twice a month to another area of the um, state and spends the night and serves children in that area and then drives back home. That's because one of our beloved teachers retired this past fall and we still are working to identify um, a teacher, the visually impaired or an early interventionist in that area to, to step in and take those kiddos. So we have that a model now of, of Lots of traveling for that one teacher, but otherwise our teachers will drive wherever a child is so that they are helping that family in the child's natural environment, in the living room, in the kitchen, in the backyard, in the community park, in the library, so that the families are learning um, the strategies that they can put in place to help their child use their vision um, to the best of their ability, uh, their functional vision but also um, to help the families realize that, that this is still their child. The child's gonna learn differently, but first and foremost, always their child. Um, we have learned through trial and error that folks in the rural areas of both Kentucky and Indiana are hesitant to have somebody from the big city come and serve their child. Um, and especially we see that if it is a a vision diagnosis that is based um, genetically. If there are family members who have had this through past generations, 
we hear a lot of, I don't need you. Um, our family does this. We know what we're doing. Um, we, we find that to be really challenging and it makes us really sad because services are so much different now than they were a few generations ago or even one generation ago. Um, so what we've done is we've worked to identify teachers of the visually impaired within those communities who are working full-time in the public school systems. And then we invite them um, to join our First Steps contract. And we have, we've made it very uh, provider friendly that we pay them for attending the trainings. We um, reimburse them for um, the day off that they need to do an orientation to go into the First Step system so that they can be added to our contract. We um, invite them to do any trainings that we're hosting. They can do free of charge. We do have a lot of those federal labor, labor laws that we have to um, invoke on them. We can't reimburse them for their mileage, but we will help them keep track of it so they can report it on their taxes. So we, we try to do whatever we can to make it a um, an easy transition to be seeing our early intervention kiddos in the afternoons or evenings. Um, and our teachers, our contracting teachers really like that. A couple of them told me it's their car payment to get that extra money coming in. Mm -hmm. But others have said, I want to be a part of this early intervention system because I will be serving these children when they get into the public school system. And I want to know, I want to know that they've had good early intervention services. So um, that's our, we call it the spoke the hub and spoke model that we, um, our offices are the hubs in Louisville and Lexington, but we have providers in smaller communities or else we drive to them. Mm -hmm. And how did the expansion into Indiana come about? Mm -hmm. Well, we have all, BIPS has always been um, a provider in Indiana. We, um, BIPS was started 30 some years ago and from the very beginning, we have served Southern Indiana, which is considered the Louisville metropolitan area. Mm. Um, about 11, 12 years ago, we had a um, mom who had been started out in Kentucky, um, married and ended up in um, California when she gave birth to her child who had multiple needs, including um, a, a diagnosis of cortical visual impairment. and. Mm. When she was living in Indiana at that time, um, vision diagnoses were not um, on the, um, I don't like to use this term, but Indiana uses the term of birth defect registry. So um, vision loss was not on that, on the registry. So if the child, if it, it wasn't um, allowed for first steps in Indiana to be providing those services, the child wasn't getting the services. Um, they used to say, you want your kid to have many more so that they can get other services and hopefully mm -hmm. vision will be tapped into. So um, that mom, we call her the mom from Indiana, not very original there, but she started <laughs> bringing her daughter to Louisville to the preschool to uh, help her have a, a hands-on experience in a vision-friendly world. So they did that for two years, drove um, an hour and a half twice a week to um, come down and spend one night over, go back, come back. Um, and when that was over, um, Rebecca, the mom said, you know, this is just not fair that I was able to do this. I have a supportive husband who can take care of our other child. He has a job that allows me to be home if 
our children. So what about those other families in Indiana who don't have that resource and support? So VIPS agreed that we would expand into um, central Indiana. And um, that's what we did about 11 years ago. And um, since then, we've moved our, our center to our offices to Indianapolis and um, have just replicated that same hub and spoke model that we have um, children, or we, excuse me, we have teachers throughout the state who are able to pick up children, do a lot of driving there as well. Um, and just this past year, we have built a family um, resource center in Indianapolis near the hospitals that work with the children with more complex needs so that we can be there for families as they are starting their journey um, of raising a child with vision loss. Tell us about, and this is selfishly, I want to know this too, because I've been to the preschool, but I haven't been to the Family Resource Center. Tell us mm -hmm. what's in the VIPS Family Resource Center yeah. in Indiana. Well, one thing um, that that really did dictate how we how the Family Resource Center was going to be built is in Kentucky, we serve children birth to five. Um, so if a family finds out that their two or three-year-old child has vision loss, they don't know to call VIPS necessarily unless their um, ophthalmologist or optometrist or pediatrician give them our name. What they're gonna do is Google and find the School for the Blind. And then, so in Kentucky, the School for, Blind, School for the Blind will say, oh, well, your child would be served through VIPS and they are a referral source. So that's how children birth to five are served in Kentucky. Um, although they go into the public school preschools for um, vision services or can receive them there, VIPS is also one of those providers for the three to five-year-old population and really is a, a referral source for those public school sites. In Indiana, the preschool program, the bricks and mortar preschool program is a part of the Indiana School for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And that is in Indianapolis where our Family Resource Center is also located. And again, when you look at the um, low frequency of vision loss, there are not enough kids going around even in Indianapolis to fill to preschools. So we knew that we could not tap into that money nor that population because the families would be sending their children to the School for the Blind because that's where the public school system tuition money would be going. So we knew as we built the Family Resource Center that this would be to serve children birth to age three. And at age three, they would go on to either public school systems or the school for the blind. So whereas on, in our Kentucky um, building, we have Kidstown with all of our stores that give you a cityscape and opportunities to travel and learn about landmarks because every building has a different color, texture, function. Um, we have a kitchen there that is our test kitchen from with GE appliances. We have lots of, it's a cityscape. Um, in Indiana, since it's only gonna be used with children up to age three, we have toddler town and it is precious, it, but it is definitely um, a, 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 a town. It's not a city. So <laughs> it has um, the built-in um, kitchen area but not Kentucky Fried Chicken like we have in Kentucky. It has, um, <laughs> it has a um, 
a tree with a, a book um, nook in it, but not the free public library like we have in, in our kids' town. It has a toddler area that you can safely put a child in um, a little space, a contained space where they can explore the tactual things on the walls. We do, um, it has an amazing path to teach the O&M skills for our children. And it even has a built-in bridge where in Kentucky, you can tell it, it was built more recently <laughs> because they have some new and fancier things. Um, lots of light tables and light things on walls that you see in some children's museums where you can put the big clear pegs in and build designs or just work on putting a peg in, um, whatever, wherever the level is with the child. We have a, our path though for O&M has a bridge over it that's all built in and it's a raised hill and there are drop-offs there that make me a nervous wreck, but it's all part <laughs> of teaching children in this real world. Um, we have a sensory room that is smaller than what we have here in, well, I, I guess it really is not that much smaller but the ball pit is built in and not one that we moved in like we have in Kentucky. Again, it's the new and improved. But the neatest thing in our sensory room is a um, CVI cave and it's very small, but it's all, it's dark, it's black with red lights and red beads and red Christmas lights and red cushions. And, and it is a CVI friendly um, space that children can go in and again, practice using that functional vision. We have two classrooms um, in, in our toddler town. Um, we don't really anticipate them being um, preschool classrooms, but they will be play group class, classrooms so that we're working on working with the two-year-olds and do parent-child, but also we would like to have an integrated play group that children can be dropped off. Um, we are learning from our Preschool teachers across the state, especially in Kentucky because of, of our history here, um, that that two-year-old class is critical for having children ready. The transition process takes longer for children with vision loss. So if we can start that at age two, they are just coming in more ready for, for preschool. And our teachers here in um, Kidstown Preschool at Vips, as well as the public school teachers, say the same thing so they can really tell when a child's had that two-year-old program so we do want to introduce that into um into indiana family resource center we have space for our teachers we have some offices we have one room that's dedicated to um tele-intervention because we know that's the, the way growth is going to go especially following up the pandemic so i love that that one room is dedicated and it has a TV screen instead of the teachers using their laptop screen. So it's, it just gives a, um, a, a greater opportunity for serving our families. Um, in our Kentucky Center, we have an eye doctor's office that is fully equipped for um, an ophthalmologist or optometrist to use. We are um, working, we are always working to get low vision clinics here. We partner with Cincinnati Children's Hospital for a CVI clinic and outreach clinic. They are also partnering now with our Indiana team. We have an eye doctor's true office, not an exam room, but an office that um, they can be using for, um, for building up a, a partnership with our Indiana team. The uh, Indiana University School of Ophthalmology and Optometry are also partnering with 
um, Phipps, Indiana to help set up more of those programs too. One of the neat things that we have in our, um, our Indiana Family Resource Center is a true family hub where they have a, a kitchen that, that is just part of everything. It's in the center of the, the building where the families know they can come in and they can either sit in the lounge that's connected or they can sit around the big island and um, share stories and network with families, meet with their teachers, meet with other service providers. We always have that open door for both of our programs that we want other team members on IFSPs and IEPs to come in and meet with our teams. So it's, it's awesome. Oh, oh we're, God, we're I'm also like in the process of, we're building a, um, we're not calling it a playground in Indiana. It's a playscape because there's not going to be permanent playground equipment, but there will be a sensory garden similar to what we have here um, in Kentucky. It'll be a little bit smaller because it's also going to be a part of that playscape where it will have a, another outdoor travel path, um, not like the mobility city we have here, but a path that we would use safely with, with two and three year, two year olds. Um, it's, it's going to be beautiful. That's in the process right now. It's a very mm. muddy lot, but it's, um, <laughs> they're, they're laying sod and filling, not laying sod yet, but filling it up with, um, the foundation for building more things out on it. So it's pretty awesome. These resources are amazing. I love hearing about it. I'm already, my wheels are spinning and I'm already oh. thinking about a road trip and <laughs> oh, yeah. I want to see these places. Oh. This is why VIPS yeah. is our model. I mean, for oh, I so have you're thought so of everything, but not just thought of it. You, you're making it all happen. And as a parent to walk into these buildings and look around and feel that children like mine have been considered from, you know, roof to floor. It mm -hmm. is just so incredible. It is just, oh, I love it. Yes. But, but just think of where best is going to be in 37 years. I mean, yes, that's yes, just, yes, yes. It makes me so excited to <laughs> think that, that it's still happening, that this growth and recognition of the needs, the specialized needs of this yes. population are still recognized and are being literally built upon to provide them the services they need. Yes, and to it, include typical peers. I just, oh, it just yeah. makes me so happy. Sorry, it, Stacey. It, it changes communities. It's, yes. it's so amazing. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. But Kathy, will you maybe um, speak a little more toward what early intervention looks like for these kiddos. I know I'm kind of going on a tangent, but, um, you know, in thinking of all these amazing resources that uh, VIPS has been able to bring to Kentucky and Indiana, I mean, it's, it's built on that foundation of, you know, recognizing that, um, you know, service to the youngest children, you know, mm -hmm. with vision loss really is critical. Um, right. Can you, right. can you speak to that? And, um, you know, how, how important are those services and, and what do those services look like? Absolutely. Well, you know, just looking at the whole population of, of young children with special needs, um, we know that the, the research that has been done on um, the amount of money that is saved by putting $1 into early intervention has really been more based on services for children um, from lower socioeconomic levels. It hasn't been as much with the population with special needs, although that is occurring more often. But even 
I think the current um, thought is for every dollar, or let me say not thought, research is that every dollar that is invested in early intervention, you are gonna save six to $7 for community-based services for middle school, high school, and adults who have special needs. One time, I'm going back several years, but I had the opportunity to hear a, a representative from the Federal Reserve said, who would not invest in any kind of investment that would give you a return of sevenfold? I mean, that is just right. crazy yep. that we're not recognizing what we can be doing for our whole country, but even our individual communities by investing in young children's services. I always hang my hat on that and and always, I mean, anytime I'm doing a training that I always have to get that in there sometime. At one time, at the time I heard that person speak, the range of, um, of re, uh, savings was actually judged to be anywhere between six and $13. They couldn't even tie it down for six to 13, but he was the one who said, I'll go with the six. That's still quite the return on my $1 investment. <laughs> so, so we know that the earlier we can get services into children with any type of special need, the better that we are going to be able to equip them for the future and save money and heartache and struggles for them and for their families. But if we go back to our vision specific kiddos, we have some one diagnosis, cortical visual impairment, that there is that opportunity to help gain some functional vision. But after we reach a certain age, we've lost our, we've lost that opportunity. So again, the earlier we get in, the earlier, I mean, the better our, our resources are going to be. We don't always need to wait for a specific diagnosis. Many times our children will come to us with um, a diagnosis that is, is truly more about the um, dealing with the, the visual system and not a neurological impairment such as cortical visual impairment. But then as we work more with the children, we recognize some of those symptoms too. So I'm very proud that our teachers get in and they don't look at the diagnosis, they look at the diagnosis, but they also look at the behaviors of the child and go back to that developmentally appropriate practice of getting those appropriate services or strategies in place. Um, in Kentucky First Steps, we use the coaching model which is based on um, family, family's priorities. Um, it's based on a family routine um, that you are doing your inventory on or your interview with the family. Um, that all comes from first steps from the early uh, intervention systems in Kentucky and in, in Indiana, they both use the, the name first steps. Um, Indiana is moving into this now. Actually, VIPS is participating in the first cohort to start using the um, family routines inventory to set up the priorities of, for the families. Um, so the family will tell us what things are they are recognizing as a struggle or that they are seeing as a priority of what they want to be working on for their child with vision loss. Um, we take that lead from the family. We coach them along. We are, I won't say we are hands-off, but we are definitely parent hands-on. The parents are the ones who are going to be the teachers of their children. And so we are there to be the teachers of the, of the parents. Um, we might touch the child to 
um, demonstrate a certain strategy or certain positions, but then we want the family to model for us that they understand what we've done. Um, it's, it's again, research-based. It's evidence-based practice that this is very impactful for children and families, regardless of what the diagnosis is. Now, that being said, with our students who are visually impaired, we have to make some accommodations. There are specialized pieces of equipment that are not in a natural environment. I don't know any homes that have a light box if the child does not have vision loss. We wanna get that light box in there so the kid is using the vision that they have so that they, we can build on that foundation and have more functional vision follow. So what we do is work with um, our resource centers through our schools for the blind that recognize VIPS Kentucky and VIPS Indiana as a state school. We're very fortunate that they do. So we are able to take advantage of the federal quota money that comes from the federal government to serve um, students who are blind or visually impaired. So we can use that money and get some equipment in. And for some kids, it's gonna be a light box, but for some kids, it's gonna be a light box and a brailler because they need to start scribbling in the way they will be writing someday. Um, it, that brailler also is huge to get the families past the, feel, the fear factor of having a child who's going to be learning differently and communicating differently in, in writing. Um, but we also are going to, for some children, get a switch in so that they have voice output so they can start that reciprocal communication. When we do bring something into the home like that, we leave it so that it is part of that natural environment because that's critical in the, the world of early intervention. Um, so our referrals for early intervention services um, for Kentucky and Indiana can come from first steps. They can come from the family or from a community member. Sometimes we get them from grandparents. Sometimes we get them from foster parents who've had a child in the past in their home who ha had received services from us. Um, we also can receive them from school systems that we will go out and work in the schools with them too in Kentucky, not in Indiana. Um, Indiana comes from the doctors or the hospitals as well as from first steps. Um, what we have found though, um, for some of our families who refer, who call and make the referral themselves, they will tell us, you know, the doctor told me about VIPs when I was there four months ago, but after they told me what my child's diagnosis was, I didn't hear anything else and I didn't look through any papers. And so what ends up happening is that those families had to wait till their child showed delays in another area and then they were referred to first steps and then from first steps they were referred to VIPs. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of our educating also with our doctors just to remind them, talk about VIPs, give them a card instead of just the brochure, give them a name to call so that we can um, help those families and, and receive them for services at an earlier earlier age. So those services will continue. And for some children, we're written into a plan for weekly visits. Other children, we might only see them quarterly, depending on the needs of the child and the priorities of the family. Um, I would like to see children every week or every other week. But again, it's, it's all early intervention systems are and should be based on family priorities. So um, it takes a lot of coaching for a family to recognize that 
vision is impacting every area of that child's development. It's gonna impact socially because they can't make eye contact with a parent or a sibling. It's gonna attack, it's going to impact their motor skills because they can't see that big red ball on the other side of the room. So they're not motivated to move across the room. Um, families typically build their rapport with the first therapist or the first early interventionist who comes into the home. And from there, it's really that person's responsibility to recognize the other needs that the family could benefit has and then could benefit from additional services. And I'd like to say that always happens, but it doesn't. We um, sometimes hear about families much later because the um, what other therapist has really focused on their discipline um, to help that child. That's a great uh, lead in to my next question, which you've sort of answered here, but um, it really rang true for me hearing that story or what you said about a diagnosis, because really when you're in that doctor's office and you hear that diagnosis, the world kind of just shuts down right there and you, right. you really do just black out anything else. So what would you say to families, whether they're in Kentucky and in Indiana or, or elsewhere, um, you know, they've just received that diagnosis that their child is blind or has a visual impairment that can't be corrected with glasses or surgery and you know, they're starting on this journey. What's your advice for them? What what should be once they're ready to, to kind of dig in and, and take next steps other than just, of course, reaching out to VIPS, but, um, you know, where should they start? Who who else can they reach out to? What what would you say they should do? Right. Well, we if we receive the referral directly from the doctor or from the family, we always encourage our families to get enrolled in first steps. Mm. Um, some families are going to say no because they think it's a government program and they don't want Big Brother watching them. And those are the words that we hear. Mm -hmm. But we know that kids with vision loss are 75 percent of them are going to have other needs. And we just want those other services available for when those needs may be recognized. So I do say that. I do encourage our families that that's a definite resource that we should be tapping into. Um, I also share with families that I'm pretty darn sure that your child's not the first one that we're, that we're going to be working with, with the diagnosis that they've had. I'm going to warn families, don't look at a standardized test. Your child mm -hmm. is going to be learning in a different sequence. They are still going to learn. But from your first day with BIPs, we're planning on their exit from BIPs because they will leave us someday and they will leave us as a more independent individual. Um, so that means we're going to look at the progress, not at a score, but we're gonna look at the progress that your child is making between visits, between IFSP reviews, um, as they move from one program to another. So I'm also gonna, <laughs> You know, um, the family services that we provide years and years ago, um, our family service program was huge. We had at least monthly visits, sometimes more often, and we fed meals, we had education classes, we had fun classes for families to do, um, and, there, and we always had babysitting service so that the families got a respite from their children too. Um, we don't have, we have a very strong family service program, but we don't have in, as many events 
because families are recognizing that they should be making friends on their own. It might be a, a family with a, another family with a child who has a visual impairment, but I don't have to come to VIPS to socialize. I can meet at the mall and walk, or I can go to the park and, you know, play on a playground with my child. So I celebrate that, that that's another really important thing that we can do with families is say, okay, would you like to meet somebody else who has a child who has the same diagnosis or similar needs? And hands down, the answer is going to be yes, 98% of the time that families do want to. So I think that that's another very important resource that we can, or service that we can provide is to help our families not feel alone in this, that um, there are other services, but there's other very appropriate forms of support for them as well. When Allison and I reached out to you and were brainstorming um, our game plan for best, um, you know, several years ago now, um, you know, we mentioned it's it's hard to find TBIs. Um, we, you know, yes. we were becoming aware, which we already knew from personal experience, but um, that there is a national shortage of TBIs. Um, but you um, had such a wonderful point that you shared with with us um, is in that some of the best providers that VIPS have is um, you know early interventionists like yourself mm-hmm. that. They already know, you know, birth to three, birth to five, um, love working with that age range. And then the vision specific information is then built upon that foundation. Um, And that was so helpful to us because that's how we kind of got our foot in the door. You know, we Mm -hmm. were able to have developmental therapists that um, we trained or um, had trained through the visa program, which uh-huh. they finished up this month. Um, right. We're so proud of all of them. And um, yeah, that's, it's really been, been wonderful for our organization. So mm-hmm. on that point, um, you know, what advice do you have for either current providers or people looking to go into the field? Maybe they are an early interventionist or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they're a TVI who, you know, in their programming, didn't have a lot of, of um, information on birth to three. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what advice would you have for them? I think that, um, that whichever discipline you come from, either early um, childhood or um, teachers of the visually impaired, you just need to be open to learning more about the other discipline. And that might be through a visa, a program such as visa, or it might be, um, you know, a a program that we can enroll you in for some good child development information. But probably the most important piece is to use the uh, other teachers in a program or the other teachers that you have established a partnership through other IFSP teams or early intervention teams, um, because they can steer you or answer a quick question or, assure you that you're on the right path with that. But, you know, we have several teachers who are duly um, certified as early interventionists and teachers of the visually impaired. And they will say in that birth to three population, they fall back much more on their early childhood piece. Um, And then supported, of course, with the vision. But I can tell you one of our um, best teachers in our early intervention system here in Kentucky is a developmental interventionist who has done the visa training and who has 
done her own research and found trainings herself, has become CBI endorsed um, just because of her, her knowledge base on child development and knowing what to where she needed to move forward for her knowledge base. I also want to ask, um, you know, we feel like Kentucky's just doing everything right, but we also know there's no perfect place. So, um, you know, what are some things that you feel Kentucky and Indiana too, if you can speak to that, you know, that they're doing really well in early intervention and things that could be improved upon? Well, I think that our services are I'm very proud of the services that we provide across both of our states. I'm very, very proud of our teachers and our education team. And I know that when they um, go into a home that they are meeting those families where they, where their needs are. Um, You know, we, we will have a provider who says, well, I'm not going to make that appointment. That family canceled on me. And I, I just shudder with that because, I mean, I've been in those shoes before where you go to a visit and nobody's home, but we have to make it up. We, we are in the service industry and we have to remember that that's the role that we're playing. Now, sometimes you can't make it up and sometimes the family's not going to be there when you do try to make it up. But um, I just, if, if we have um, a, a, provider who does not have that flexibility or that open heart to try again, that's a really hard skill to teach somebody. Um, it, it really almost needs to be in writing that this is how many attempts you make to try to, to reschedule an appointment. That's definitely a, a roadblock that um, I'd love to find a, a secret sauce that we could make that work for all teachers. Another one of our very um, challenging situations has been to have equity across our workloads and caseloads because, you know, some teachers are going to drive two hours to see a child for one hour and then two hours back to get to the next child or to get home. Others are going to drive 10 minutes because they live in a metropolitan area and their children are, live in the same zip code. So we have developed our VIPS caseload point system so that we can um, just kind of make that more equitable for our teachers. Um, and, and that's one of the solutions that we've come up with and have even shared with other agencies as well. Um, I think that if areas of improvement, I would like to see us, um, I'd like to, uh, to be able to provide more services to our families who want more services. In Kentucky, we have service limitations in the early um, intervention system in first steps. So a family has to choose how much therapy and how many different therapies they want for their child that can only go to a certain amount. Indiana's open, there's no service um, limitation, but we've had to place it on ourselves. Um, we've had to, one provider calls it, says he wants to be the mass unit that goes in and bandages people and um, takes every referral that we get. But we also know for best practice, we have to limit how many children we serve so we can serve those on our caseloads the best. So that's that's another thing that we're always trying to reevaluate. I'm rambling here, but, but I, so I guess the greatest challenge is um, 
determining that caseload piece and how to make it equitable for our teachers, but also how to make it um, more purposeful for the families that we do serve. So we're not overextending ourselves, but are truly addressing the individual needs of families. Kathy, the hub and spoke model that you mentioned earlier, I'm curious if uh, the, the move to virtual services that we saw throughout COVID and that continues to happen now um, has had any impact on that or how that connect, how those two were connected. Oh, I think it definitely has. Um, we know that those, those families who are um, out in the, in the margins of our service areas so on the borders of our states, um, it can be much more impactful if we can increase our frequency and we can do that through virtual. Um, it saves us money for mileage, of course. Um, our teachers will tell you it's just as much planning, sometimes more when you're doing a virtual lesson, um, especially to have the family understand that that child does not need to be in front of the computer for an hour, that it's coaching the family, not the child. Um, we actually did not miss a beat in um, Kentucky and Indiana when, when COVID struck and we could not go into families' homes anymore because we had already dipped our toe a little bit into that we, virtual home visit, BHV, um, because we knew that our partners in the Western part of the country, in the Western states, in Utah and um, New Mexico, where they don't really even call it rural, but I don't know what they call it, um, but their children are far, far, far apart. Um, and so they were doing a whole lot of virtual visits. So we had already started talking about we wanted to be using that model and we tried it out on our own with a few of our families, very, very successful. So when families come into VIPS, now we can say to them, we don't have a provider available in your area right now. But if you agree, we'll connect you with, start you off with virtual visits. And then when one of our providers in your area is available, you can jump into face-to-face -face visits. And that for some families, they're gonna say, no, I'd rather wait till face-to-face. -face. But uh, now we're seeing more families are saying, yes, yes, just give me something to hold on to. And then um, I know that you, that you will come face-to-face. -face. So yes, it has been very impactful for us to um, really expand our services, but increase them to increase that frequency for some of our families. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's now I love that. It's, we yeah. do the same thing. We're, we're expanding into virtual in other areas to reach more families. And mm -hmm. we have the same family guided and focused model where, mm -hmm. you know, I tell families all the time, we're coaching you so that you can support your child throughout the week and months mm -hmm. when we're not there because we get yeah. an hour with these families, you know, maybe weekly, maybe twice a month. And right. so the goal is really to, to give information and strategies to those parents and caregivers um, more so than just right. directly working with the child. Yeah. So I heard this, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because I heard this one, one time I read it or something. The average 24 month old so the average two-year-old is awake 85 hours a week. So if you think of that, you're not going to, if you come in for one hour and work directly with that child, they get one hour of instruction, of intentional instruction. But if you work with the parent, you're not going to expect them to do 84 hours of intervention. 
But if you teach them that strategies that every time you change a diaper, you can be doing this, or every time you're getting juice out of the refrigerator, you can do this, then there are just so many more opportunities in those other 84 hours for the child to be reinforced, for their development to be reinforced and, and built upon. So I was so good. I just wrote yes. it down. I'm like, I'm yeah. going to use that. That's so good. Okay, well, we really appreciate you doing this today. It's been so great. I learn new things every time I talk to you. Um, and then the last question I just want to ask is how can those listening um, to this podcast today support VIPs? Well, um, I would say um, visit our website, vips.org, just to learn more about what we're doing and learn more about the population of young children with vision loss. Um, of course, we'll always take donations, but um, help spread the word, not just about VIPs, but um, more importantly about the abilities of young children with vision loss, that um, we're not a, a, not a population to be pitied, we're a population to be admired for how we um, continue to, to grow and to help these kids develop. And that's, and, and I also always, always want to stress that we don't have um, a secret recipe for what we do. We always have ways that we can improve. So I invite people if, if there's a recommendation or if they're aware of a way that we can be expanding services or our um, service area, then I'm more than happy to get those recommendations as well. Love it. Thank Perfect. you. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Do you know a family or provider in need of resources to support a child with low vision or blindness? Do you know someone with lived experience or professional expertise related to blindness who might be willing to share their story? If so, please reach out to us at blindearlyservices.org. Thank you for listening to the Best Together podcast and for supporting our mission. And please stay in touch. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Blind Early Services. Until next time.